Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. And today we have a very special guest who's going to be joining us. A clinical psychologist and expert on issues relating to anxiety and fear, Dr. Dan Kalb. Dr. Kalb has been a practicing psychologist for over 25 years and focuses much of his practice on working with people who suffer from extreme anxiety, hoarding, or OCD. Before we get into our conversation, I'd like to remind you about our new Patreon account. We're now on Patreon, and you can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast if you would like to support the show. For just the cost of a couple cups of coffee a month, you'll get access to expanded show notes that I put together for every episode, early interviews with our guest experts, the special Just One Thing episodes, the videos that we create for my conversations with Rick, and a wide variety of additional bonuses. Also, most importantly, you'll know that you're supporting us in continuing to produce this content, which we deeply appreciate. So, Dan, it's great to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm really happy here to discuss uh, anxiety, and uh, I wish it were under different circumstances, but thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And we actually planned this conversation to kind of bring the listeners behind the curtain for a second, um, months and months and months ago. And a variety of things came up. We all had to kind of move the scheduling around. But I think that it's really prescient that this is the moment that we're having a conversation with a real expert related to topics of anxiety and fear. So you've been working with people around their anxiety-related issues for a long time, which uh, feels very, you know, meaningful for this moment. And to kind of set the stage a little bit here, it may seem a bit obvious, but I'd like to start by asking what distinguishes an anxiety disorder, uh, something like OCD, from some of the other issues that people struggle with. So what are the common characteristics of an anxiety disorder? Well, you know, obviously some fear and anxiety is warranted and helpful. So you need a little anxiety to, say, push yourself to study for a test. And you need fear when a bear jumps out from behind a tree. Then you have that surge of adrenaline to fight or flee. But where it becomes a problem is when probability or severity are greatly exaggerated and powerfully irrational. And then it starts to have a deleterious effect on, you know, love or work. And it's a problem when it's unduly stressing and it leads to a, uh, an increasingly constrictive life. The problem with uh, COVID-19 is that measures usually taken to treat the various anxiety disorders, and uh, especially the gold standard and treatment of choice is exposure therapy. Because of the unique, <laughs> the unique nature of COVID, the, sure. uh, those recommendations and the kind of homework assignments patients would ordinarily do are now uh, you know, contraindicated. So often, let's say you would, uh, somebody had OCD, around uh, having AIDS or herpes, they feel if I touch a doorknob, I might get it. Their job would be, well, touch the doorknob, you know, maybe an easier doorknob that doesn't feel so contaminated and then don't wash or touch the light switch and don't wash. So now, of Mm, course, mm -hmm. you know, washing is recommended. Avoidance is usually (laughs) a, a, a big symptom when you have anxiety disorders. So you want to push back against avoidance because your life gets smaller and smaller. But now with the new normal here, you know, avoidance is essentially a a recommendation. So what we're doing with COVID anxiety is not a great teaching example for dealing Mm. with anxiety in general. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. 
Yeah, Dan, I wanted to pick up on something that you said uh, just briskly, and it's really fun to talk with a fellow clinician. And I want to say for the record that I've known you and known of you, I think for easily 20 years. Uh, I actually even sought you out when I was first licensed to do a consult with you, a one-time consult on a tricky situation. So I I hold you in high regard, and I think it's really fantastic that uh, you've been able to be on the show because you're just a fountain of useful practical information. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rick. And I've been following with interest your, your enormous contribution to you know enormous amounts of people. So uh, I very you. much appreciate the, the invitation from you. Uh, so to go back to something you said very quickly, you talked about the probability and severity uh, that get uh, wildly exaggerated typically when someone has a truly clinical anxiety disorder. And I just wanted to kind of underline for everyone what you're saying. You're talking about the chances of a bad event. Mm -hmm. And then second, if the bad event occurred, the impact. And I wanted to add third, how people could cope with it. So irrational anxiety fundamentally boils down to a combination of overestimating the likelihood of the bad event. Second, overestimating the impact of the bad event if if it occurred. And third, underestimating a person's capacity to cope with the impacts if they actually occurred. And people have a lot of opportunity, of course, as you well know, as a specialist here, to correct those um, misestimates, those appraisals of things that are really wildly wrong. So that's an opportunity right there, obviously, for people to correct. Yes. Yeah, so so as, as it would apply to um, even, you know, the medical aspects, and there's so much else to worry about with COVID, their minds go to catastrophic thinking. Yeah, exactly. So here's my question for you. Thinking about people in general, in this time, drawing on what you know, if you were going to suggest one thing, your one thing that a person could do who's feeling really anxious, fearful, uh, alarmed by what's happening currently, What's something they can do themselves on their own uh, that would be really helpful? Well, there's a few things. So one is, of course, that they should not be flooding themselves with the news constantly. That's just going to gin themselves up. And of course, okay, good. We're, we're drawn to give way to perceived threat. It feels like that the more you know information that you get, the more control you have. But actually, that tends to backfire. So I would suggest that they really limit the news to uh, staying on top of the situation with real concern and maybe even set concrete parameters. So they might say, well, you know, 10 minutes is arbitrary. 10 minutes twice a day would keep me sufficiently informed. There's an acronym FEAR, F-E-A-R, meaning future Mm -hmm. events appearing real. So they want to stay out of Mm -hmm. imagined futures and, and be more in the present. And I think as you would often recommend, one way to return to the present, uh, you know, is just to attend to your senses, which are always happening in the present. So sit and know you're sitting. What am I feeling in my hands? How does my tush feel on the seat? What colors do I see around the room? So the other thing that, that they want to do is not overvalue their catastrophic thoughts about the virus. Because mm-hmm. anxious people tend to assume danger, or we all do, when there's no clear guarantee of safety and the virus being invisible uh, guarantee is invisible. So it's kind of important to you know that your mind is going to drift toward uh, overvaluing those catastrophic thoughts. And then the third thing uh, they could do, and then I want to get your input, 
is not overly respond to their thoughts about the, the virus behaviorally. So they want to go by the you know HWH, uh, WHO and CDC guidelines. Mm-hmm. You know the new protective measures are the temporary new baseline. So you really want to stick with what they advise and not head into the slippery slope of overdoing it. So a good thing to watch is if they say 20 second hand washing, you want to watch, uh oh, am I slipping Mm. into 40 seconds and 60 seconds? And is my one day shower becoming twice daily? So once you follow the recommendations, you got to tell yourself it's enough. And when you have the thoughts that I miss a spot, that I do it long enough, let me check uh, one more time. You just acknowledge them, let them go and, you know, move on and accept the doubt. Yeah. One thing I would just uh, say has been really helpful for me is to appreciate uh, that we all have a body. I think there was some kind of line from James Joyce about a comical character that, quote, he lived some distance from his body. And I think people need to tune into the body. It is the body that is getting alarmed, the body that has, as you well know, uh, very, very powerful, well-evolved machinery for you know reacting to perceived threats. Mm-hmm. So one thing I have found to be very useful is to just really focus on calming the body and to appreciate that the body calming can occur alongside a coping response, can, al- can occur alongside prudent caution. We mm-hmm. can calm ourselves, and it doesn't mean we're necessarily lowering our guard and being foolish. So, you know, things like deep breathing or... Um, again, as you all know, just breathing in the area of the diaphragm, appreciating that, and then especially savoring that experience in some sense, kind of marinating in it, taking in the good of the feeling of the body calming into what I call calm strength, that combination of um, calm and determination, calm and grit together, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, sort of the secure base inside that we then move out into the world from. And I wanted to just kind of toss that in myself. Yeah, I like that. And then the... Uh... What I've heard, you know, there's so many different, say, breathing techniques to relax, but they seem to me that they all have four qualities in common. So relaxed breathing is slower, quieter, deeper, and more rhythmic. It kind of makes sense if you were like, uh, as an actor saying, okay, there's a saber-toothed tiger outside, you know, the cave, and you would be going... So you want to kind of do the opposite of that. And then, again, I don't think this is your key go-to, but certainly muscle relaxation can kind of help reset the idle. So Mm. for for me, I like to, you know, uh, if I'm going in that direction, is, uh, you know, soften the eyes, relax the jaw, uh, make sure that your uh, shoulders are not all tensed up. And have a relaxed tummy. If you do all four of those, you're mm, going to start mm-hmm. chilling. And then you don't get into that biofeedback loop when the body is all tense and the mind gets scared. Yeah, I think that's great advice, Dan. And you're basically speaking to a variety of somatic interventions somebody can have around working with their body, things that they can do inside the physicality of themselves to settle themselves down. To speak to maybe another angle here, One of the things that I've really seen happening among my friend group is this statement of, I just can't stop thinking about this. Ah. That it's really, you know, to use the language of Buddhism, this thought has like invaded the mind and remained. And one of the major features of OCD, which you are a huge expert in, um, is this persistent thought that gets wedged in the mind 
that then the person has to perform a behavior to basically settle the thought to grossly yes. oversimplify. Obviously, you know, many people are experiencing this feeling of I just can't stop thinking about this with regards to coronavirus who are not conventionally, you know, clinically OCD or something like that. But I have to imagine that there are some things that you've done with people in your practice working with people who suffer from these persistent negative thoughts to basically slowly unwind them from those over time. And I was wondering what some of those things are and if you happen to have any thoughts with how people can entangle from that kind of obsession uh, with this potential danger. Disentangle. Disentangle, yeah. yeah. Untangle, disentangle, yeah. sure, yeah. yeah. I guess the key, well, the two things they should not do, as we all know, is one is to try to push that thought out of their mind. So, you know, uh, obviously, if you if I tell you uh, with all your might, just don't think of a pink elephant, don't let it come into your mind, then you have to kind of think about what you're not supposed to think about. Uh, so it's almost like, uh, you know, uh, trying to close the door by uh, uh, revolving door <laughs> by giving it a shove. So we know that <laughs> trying to expel uh, a, a thought does not work. So um, in addition, and what also doesn't work, and I, I think it pays to spend a couple minutes on this because it's such an instinctive uh, uh, propensity that we all do it, but it really isn't helpful. So you don't want to uh, get this worry voice to kind of ensnare you into debate because when you mm. reassure yourself in the moment that the fear won't happen, the anxiety goes down, but it's only a short term. So worry will trump reassurance. So, I mean, we've all been there, but let's say you have an excellent student who's worrying about the next exam and he goes, I'm going to flunk the final. And then he says, well, but I did well in the midterm. And he says, well, that was lucky. The teacher asked what I knew. And he says, well, it wasn't luck. You studied hard. You know, the first test of the semester was easy. Well, you say that every time, but this time it's true. I work with people who freeway anxiety and they'll say, mm. I've never been in an accident. You know, uh, you're due. And then you go, well, I'm a safe driver. No, your anxiety makes you unsafe. No, my anxiety makes me more attentive. But I'm older. My reflexes aren't what they used to be. So basically what I'm getting to is that you don't want to play this fruitless game of whack-a-mole. Because even if you let go of A, the mind shifts to to be. Okay, Dan. So just, I, I want to jump in here. And the reason for it is because you, I think are about to describe newly how I should be interacting with my mother. And <laughs> I feel like I'm about to learn a lot from you here. So that's why I'm leaping in with interest. So what should you do instead? Because I play that game all the time with my friends. I'm now realizing where, and, and I think it's like a natural coping response, right? Where somebody says, I'm worried about this. And so you naturally respond with like, oh, here are all the reasons you shouldn't be worried about it. But uh, okay. you're I think totally the crux right is, on. Does yeah. the person want to be convinced? That's the bottom sure, line. Yeah, yeah. That's a great which, point. Which yeah. viewpoint are you allying with truly? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So what do you say to all that, Dan? Okay. So you, this is, you have to identify this uh, t tendency to self-reassure as such. And this includes not reassuring others. Even though it's so yummy when somebody kind of tries to reassure you, your anxiety goes down in the moment, but it's going to mm. pop right you know, up again. So you want to end the, the internal debate. So um, ideally, you should end on the worry and the what if. But in real life, people tend to think things through once. 
And then if you do it once, you're supposed to try to stop. You know, in court they have, thankfully I've never been, but apparently an attorney can say asked and answered, meaning we've been through this. It's in the Mm. record. We don't have to do it Mm -hmm. again. So when you don't want to get, this is, I think what you're saying, you don't want to get into a tug of war with your worry. You just got to drop the rope. And it can really be, self-assurance can be a pernicious addiction. So anxiety goes down in the moment. That's why it's reinforced, but it pops up again. When you they reassure they're, in essence, digging out of a hole with a shovel. So, oh, wait, Dan. Dan, can I interrupt just here? Sure. So first, there's all kinds of cognitive therapy methods that are very effective in which people begin with you know, uh, some kind of belief, and then they challenge it, they dispute it, and eventually they stop believing it. So these methods can work over time. Plus, clearly, there's a place for reassuring oneself uh, about something that you're alarmed about uh, and reassuring others who then constructively can take in that rational reassurance, such as from, let's say, the public health authorities you were talking about earlier. So it seems to me the crux issue is whether someone is caught up in a loop of just arguing with that, you know, paranoid <laughs> point of view inside themselves, rather than, but that's distinct from someone productively disputing or, or reassuring um, an over-the-top worry while wanting to be convinced of the reassurance and the rational dispute. So it it's not problematic per se that someone reassures themselves or reassures others. The What's problematic is to get caught up in a yes-but loop inside exactly. your own mind or with other people, right? That's what you're saying? Precisely. So you do the reassurance and this what-if voice go, well, yeah, I guess you have a point, but what about X? There's certainly a lot of room for comfort, But uh, I guess I feel strongly about this. The problem is not, after a while, the worry itself. The problem is that you're worrying. So we're shifting. You want to recognize it as a generic worry. So when that floats in yet again, and the worry can wear a lot of costumes, as you know, but you sort of want to see it. Oh, here's one of those W things floating in. Here's an opportunity for me to practice not getting inveigled into worry and ensnared by it. Uh, I want to let go of this. Here's a chance to let go. Yeah, absolutely. No, so it's um, so what you're talking about is you're describing a process fundamentally where you can watch the voice that's going on in your mind without getting ensnared by it. Exactly. Either getting so. ensnared into a conversation with it or an argument with it or whatever else, because you know that at the end of the day, you're just going around and around and around the track in hell, and you're digging that track a little bit deeper each time that you go around it. Exactly. But if I could just again make the point, just because a few people, some people get sucked into the vortex of an underlying anxiety and they're identified with it to some extent. And, um, you know, any form of reassurance with them gets sucked into the yes, but vortex. Still, for most people, a process of basically taking a look at those three potential mistakes, overestimating the likelihood of the bad event, overestimating the impact if it happens, and underestimating their coping capabilities. You know, for people to kind of step back from their initial, maybe excessively alarmist take, and and reevaluate their view of things that moves into a genuine sense of conviction and reassurance that's really grounded in objective reality, that's a really useful thing for most people. 
Yes. So okay. if a woman, say, is uh, she's anxious that she'll, you know, getting lost into the, you know, if she drives into the city, so she's so, if you say, well, what would happen? She'll get like, so I, I don't know, it'd be so terrible, I can't even think about it. But to your point of, about drawing on resources, if she gets blocked by the anxiety, but if you say, well, what would you actually, well, I guess I could get on my cell phone, I could pull into a gas station and ask, I could go to a car. So she really can then start drawing on her strengths and resources that were previously just eclipsed by being flooded with anxiety. So yes, we all have strengths to draw. Expelling the thought doesn't work long-term and trying to debate it into submission doesn't work long-term. What's left, and as you uh, mentioned, what's left, of course, is acceptance, that you're trying mm. to put your efforts in, not into getting rid of doubt and uncertainty, mm. but to direct them towards acceptance. So Dan, what are some of the ways that you work with somebody inside of your practice to move them more into that stance of acceptance? Okay, so initially it would be uh, asking them to not push it away, but to say, can I be with it? Can I be willing to have this experience, observing it with curiosity, even intense anxiety, you know, you, observing the thoughts, emotions, and sensations as possible. People watch the vicissitudes of those as they wax and wane and transform. You know, more verbal, but creative people will say that their anxiety almost has a form. They observe how it changes in size and shape mm -hmm. and color mm -hmm. and weight. So the point I think we're all saying is that the more you fight it, the more stuck you're going to get. And uh, the, the more airtime you give it into your head, the bigger you're going to make it in your mind. So you have to uh, watch how you talk to yourself about this. So it's not helpful to say, I can't take it. I hate it. I need it to stop. That's going to make you feel more desperate. But instead, if you say, this is hard, I can dig deep. It's okay to feel this. You're going to evoke a different response from yourself. So just to uh, one more point about that the self-talk should be along the lines of, okay, mm. this is where things are for me right now. In this moment, I can handle it. I'm willing to feel anxious right now. I'm willing to feel unsure right now. This is stress. Stress is part of life. Where do I feel the anxiety in my body? And it's not so terrible. I can coexist with it. Mm. Dan, almost existentially, how do you help people cope with the ultimate fears that tend to anchor the mid-range fears? And for many people, including in a time of a pandemic, the ultimate fear is death. If, and also probably even worse than that is the death of one's people they love. Uh, I'm at peace with my death, but I don't want forest to go. You know, <laughs> so, uh, this is a deep, 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 deep topic. Lots about it. What do you think about it? You know, just helping people just kind of ground out the bottom line ultimate, which is coming to terms with their own mortality and, and accepting it, which doesn't mean acquiescing to it, but it can mean a sense of serenity about it. How do you help people find that? Right. So um, I guess the big point is that, of course, we're all going to die, uh, which is sad. I mean, <laughs> Not for us. <laughs> Immortal. What's wrong here. with you, Dan? Hey, hey you know, I, I, I only work here. I don't make the rules. So everybody that we love, we're going to lose. Everybody that loves us. There's, there's no other end, uh, end point. But the, the point for this is, Let's say you're worried that you uh, might get cancer or something. So you may or may not get, this is the whole point, you may or may not get cancer, but you don't want to spend five years worrying about it. And then you get it and look back and go, oh man, 
you know, I really detracted from the past five years with the worry. Mm. So we have to just try to live as best we can in the moment with no guarantee. It's just, yep, I'm going to have to accept that, but I'm going to turn, you know, my life to living the best I can in the moment. You know, that gets into the values piece, what really is important to me and how can I do that more often in more settings while I'm still here. You're really connecting that to a sense of purpose. Exactly. So Dan, if the bottom line anchor of someone's fear related, let's say, to the pandemic is death. And it seems like you're saying that one way to cope with that fear and to move more into acceptance, just accepting that as the ultimate possibility and coming to terms with it, uh, being at peace about it fundamentally, one way to do that is to have a sense of purpose. Meanwhile, that you make the most of the time you have on this earth. And that's Precisely. that's one part of it. I'm just feeling that's a little bit, though, of a kind of sideways maneuver to really face the ways that people don't want to go, or there's some kind of visceral animal fear deep in their belly about what might happen. And to accept that is a big reach. And I just kind of wondered if you had anything else to say about that. The brain doesn't want to die. It also yeah. doesn't want to get embarrassed. So we're talking about sometimes there's an uh, annihilation anxiety. And what uh, sometimes I distinguish with patients is the fear dying or is the fear being dead. Yeah. And they're very distinct. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't really, you know, as far as being dead, you know, some people say, well, uh, you know, I know what it's going to be like to feel dead. It's going to be just like it felt before I was born. And then some people with different religious backgrounds might believe in some sort of an afterlife. Uh, so I don't challenge people's defenses, however they come to terms with that. They might know something you don't. Who knows? <laughs> they, well, <laughs> they well might. And, you know, but they also kind of, you know, there's sort of a, uh, a little fallacy of uh, being dead. It's like almost we're going to know that we're dead and suffer from being dead. So people kind of, if they're not especially religious with an afterlife, they kind of project their living self into their dead self, and that mm. causes anxiety. <laughs> so that idea, Dan, of projecting your living self into your experience while you're dead is actually a relatively revelatory one for me. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I think that there there is a way to kind of realign with what you were saying a second ago about purpose and life goal and wh- however you might frame it. I, I do think that there is this way, just speaking personally, where I think that for a long time, I had a very acute fear of death. Mm. I uh, told a story on a podcast a a while ago about this precise moment where I realized that one day I too would die. Mm. And I think that it was about, I was about six or seven years old, and I was in the living room of my parents' house, and I remember exactly where I was. And I just had this like moment where existential dread overwhelmed Mm. me. And I just started crying, I fell on the floor, the whole thing, it was a whole to-do. And I don't know if I'm unique in that experience, but I think that a lot of people have some kind of experience of like the first time that they came to terms with the fact of their own mortality on a certain level. And Mm -hmm. that being said, I think that the primary driver of me becoming increasingly comfortable, for lack of a better word, with the fact that I will also one day die is probably increasingly getting a sense that I'm getting the most out of life while I'm living. Ah, 
Very good. Which is a really funny thing to say, but I think that it's actually totally true and um, really lines up with what you're saying about this sense of projecting into our death, like the idea that if I if I die feeling like I didn't get enough out of life, I will always feel that way, which is, of course, not true. I, I mean, probably, who knows? But uh-huh. I, I just found that that was a really interesting and, for me, kind of revelatory point. So thank you for that. Yeah. So I think what you're feeling is, let me fully embrace uh, my values and what this life has to offer and its joys and beauty while I still can. There's a little bit of time pressure there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you had asked me before, what can you actually in a practical way do when you Mm -hmm. kind of have these incessant... Yeah, that would be great. But again, I want to scale it. It's not so much invasive, incessant, clinical level issues, just normal range. Uh, I walk down the street, I interact with people it's on everyone's mind, yeah. in part because of the secondary but still very significant effects of, wow, uh, I'm, what do I do now for dinner? We used to go out this night. Or literally, uh, oh, I was going to go do that event. Like, do I go to church this Sunday? Yes. Uh, well, yes, I guess yes. not. So there are yeah. all these consequences. So yeah, just in general, how can people uh, deal with fear? I guess they can practice the skill of Uh, acceptance because we have so many triggers that arise all during the day. So first they have to identify the what if voice as such. And the anxiety voice is telling you that the content is the issue, but it's really all about process. So as I mentioned before, it's not so much what you're worried about, but that you worried and that you're letting yourself get hijacked by these fearful thoughts. You essentially, when it comes, you want to take the hit of anxiety You pause there, and I've heard this, I like this a lot. I've heard it referred to as name it and claim it. So it's, you don't try to make it stop. You know, where do I feel it in my body? And you take the scary thought and the accompanying emotions and sensations, and they'll pass if you don't fight them. And then you move on. You say, you know what? I don't have to answer that question. Here's an opportunity to practice accepting doubt and anxiety. I want to practice. I think it was Rumi, that the 13th century Persian philosopher, that said, the cure for the pain is in the pain. So you can invite your attention to essentially get back to what you're doing. Your attention is a little bit like a miner's headlamp, so you can decide where you aim it. So you gently shift from what if to what else, and you place your attention Mm. on the current activity that goes in the foreground the anxiety can hang out in the background. Mm. And when you don't fight the thought, it happens more readily. So you don't want to get lost in what AA calls, you know, stinking thinking. You don't want to bite the hook. Uh, But Mm. this is to be real. It's inevitable that you're going to find yourself on the worry train. And then you just got to get off the next stop. Oh, you know, I know you scary thoughter. I fear, how's it going? Rapid heartbeat? You know, we go way back. Anxiety's happening, <laughs> arousal's happening, adrenaline's happening. So the key point, just to say it one last time, is we're not trying to make the anxiety go away in the short term because it increases in the long term. A couple things here. So first, I think there are lots of things people do immediately when they're feeling worried, apprehensive, there's a sense of dread, maybe they're mm-hmm. moving into very active forms of alarm or fear. Uh, Maybe there are associated 
uh, feelings such as irritability or anger at, at the threat or others who don't seem to understand or are not alarmed enough or are too alarmed. I mean, it's life. Uh, welcome to my kitchen over the last several days. So uh, in that context, there are plenty of things, as you, as you know, that people can do in the moment that are good to do. They're, they are skillful means. They are effective coping uh, in the moment. You know, calm down, center. We're not speaking against short-term, effective, reasonable methods for managing anxiety. Those themselves do not necessarily increase long-term anxiety. Uh, what, let's say, might increase long-term anxiety uh, would be to repress the feelings in a in a dominating kind of way, you know, <laughs> the return of the repressed, right? As Freud put it, they will kind of I've bubble seen that back movie, up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's okay to cope in the moment with uh, what's happening, and it's appropriate to. And one thing I wanted to kind of speak to with you about coping in the moment is social supplies, connecting yes. with others, literally touch. Uh, my wife and I are just making sure we're hugging each other more reaching out to friends, seeing how they're doing, and, and focusing both on the receiving of compassion, kindness, normal range friendliness, you know, dark humor, gallows humor, whatever works for you, you know, crazy pictures floating around on, the, uh, on Facebook now that are kind of funny but carry a, a real wisdom in them. Anyway, so you're receiving that and you're also giving it, as you know, from the territory of the so-called tend and befriend theory from Shelley Taylor at UCLA about stress relief that it actually calms us to be appropriately caring toward others and reaching out and connect with others, particularly in a time when we are all faced uh, you know, by this threat. So do you agree with all that? And you want to uh, add to yeah, it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, especially when we're you know, all being told how important social distance is to right. maintain social support by your FaceTime or the phone. There's a few other in terms of what you can do along those lines. Yeah, of please course, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, you want to take steps to reduce the stress, and that, of course, involves sticking with the cornerstones of wellness, exercise, good nutrition, quality sleep. I would add mindfulness meditation, all beneficial for mental and physical health. You know, uh, for those with a spiritual bent, there might be many of your followers, so to speak, mm -hmm. You want to practice extra loving kindness because fear is constricting and it makes you defensively clenched. But being extra caring gets you kind of out of your head in a constructive way that's consonant with your values. And we, like you're saying, you know, people now are not going to be at their best. So there's plenty of opportunities to dig deep and be extra forgiving and kind and patient. You can also th practice thinking of things that you're grateful for that can add a balance to your perspective. You want to take mm. breaks and allow yourself to enjoy things, focus on what you can do and yeah. uh, not what you can no longer do. For me, you know, I plan to, uh, you know, do even more hiking and to finally, you know, clean out my garage with this downtime. <laughs> and then lastly, and I think you would support this, the importance of self-compassion. Yeah. So this heightened anxiety about coronavirus is normal. You're not alone. It's hard. You might say to yourself, well, you know, I'm sorry you're having a tough time. I hope it eases soon. Like everyone else, you're doing the best you can. But I did want to just throw in, because you had asked it previously, and I think it could be helpful. These are just techniques that you can actually use during the day. Some people, they engage in thought delay, 
So it's so odd you can be persecuted by a particular worry for 12 hours, but you can also say, you know what, when you pop into my head, I know you're important because it's saying, you can't blow me off. This is so important. Say, you know what, I'm going to worry straight about you for 15 minutes on my schedule. 9, 9 p.m., you got my full attention. And what actually happens is sometimes if you just try to concentrate on the worry without any reassurance, it's unbelievable. You know, it could have persecuted you all day long, but it's hard to keep up straight worry. It's paradoxical, but 15 <laughs> minutes straight. People will say they peek at the clock. It's like eight minutes. Oh my God, how am I going to keep this going? Mm. Another thing that people do is they kind of mock, if you will, the anxiety. So they can say it in a high voice, a low voice. Hmm. They can sing it, like maybe think, you know, coronavirus will kill me soon. My son's going to be an orphan. I'll die a slow and wretched <laughs> death. And, and my pain won't be eased by morphine. Uh, it's cute. Some people uh, use what's called the two-word cure, which is screw you. <laughs> Some people use what arguably- Wait, directed at that kind of over-the-top worry part. Yeah, right. right when it's insistent. It's not, and you're not saying speaks. it to your roommate, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, this is to the what-if voice that's endlessly yeah. persecuting you. But, but mostly what I want to emphasize, because this is really the key way to go, is to face the bully head on. So you have a schoolyard bully, you probably could survive middle school by hiding around, you know, the corners of buildings and ducking under trees. But so much better is to just go up to the bully and go, all right, you know, I want to go from A to B. I step in front of him. What are you going to tease me about today? You know, glasses, overweight, freckles. You know what? Let's just get this over with because I got to move on. So, mm. you know, when the boo voice starts up, the, the boo, I call it the boo voice because it tries to scare you. You just say, okay, you know, give me your worst. I can take it. So your, your posture is, it'll be scary. I'll have anxiety, but that's okay. I'm not afraid mm. to feel mm-hmm. fear. So put it a different way. The ultimate goal is you want to change your relationship to anxiety to say, this is hard, but I'm willing to deal with it. That's awesome, Dan. And that's a great piece of advice, I think, to uh, leave people with here. As we come to a close, there's a final question that we like to ask people who come on the show, and I'm curious what your answer is to it. If you had the ability to go back in time and talk to yourself as a child, a young adult, someone going through those kind of challenging developmental periods, what would you want to say to that person? Well, first I would I'd talk about compassion and, and I'm sorry you're having such a tough time. And if I knew then what I know that uh, now I was doing everything wrong. I was engaging, <laughs> no, seriously, I was engaging yeah. in avoidance. Like I had social anxiety and uh, I was engaging in essentially like uh, behavioral compulsions to reduce my anxiety. I've had OCD my whole life. So I would engage in all these rituals to turn down the anxiety. And I engage a lot mm-hmm. in reassurance seeking. And, uh, so now I feel much more skilled. I have a, uh, you know, my, my symptoms still wax and wane, but, uh, uh, basically I have a big, happy, juicy life. So these mm. new methods that have been developed, are really, uh, highly effective. I had been in talk therapy for quite a while and it helped me understand myself, which was valuable, but it didn't really reduce my symptoms. So then I gravitated mm. to what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which gave me tools and techniques to manage my symptoms. And it's been extremely effective. So what I guess I'm doing now is I'm 
and this is why I'm talking to you guys, is that I'm trying to turn adversity into advocacy. Mm-hmm. That's well, fantastic, Dan. Thank you so much for doing this with us today. Yeah, good for you. And thank you for your service. Really. Okay. Delighted to uh, be with you. And I wish you guys well. It's going to be, uh, I think, a long haul for all of us. So it's a, you know, kind of a chance to really uh, basically accept uncertainty and not mm. fight it. Yeah, I think you're totally right. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Dan Kalb. Dan is an expert in anxiety disorders in particular, and the primary focus of our conversation was how people can unravel themselves from needless, excessive anxiety. One of the challenges of this moment is that anxiety is, well, really not needless in a lot of ways. There are a lot of good reasons to change our behavior, take good precautions, and really be aware of ourselves when we're traveling through the world. But that being said, there's a difference between taking reasonable precautions and being thoughtful versus unnecessary, obsessive, compulsive thought loops around things that could potentially hurt us that aren't currently hurting us right now. To summarize, there's kind of a spectrum of anxiety. There's anxiety that compels you to useful action. There's anxiety that is excessive and unnecessary and only painful. And then there's maybe this other kind of anxiety where you're actually worried about something, but you push it away from you so you don't feel like you have to feel worried. And this stops you maybe from taking good, useful precautions. We're aiming for that middle ground where you're just anxious enough to make the interventions that are going to help you in your life, but not so anxious that you can become overwhelmed by it. I think Dan did a really great job of describing how people who have clinical levels of anxiety disorder or OCD use these really unhealthy coping strategies to work through their anxiety. And one of the negative loops that people who suffer from a true full-on anxiety disorder tend to get into is that they excessively ruminate with their anxiety. And one of the ways that they do this is by kind of battling it out with it. How they'll get into this loop where they go around and around and around with the argument in the side of their head, and they can never extract themselves from it. And with somebody who has truly a full-on anxiety disorder, it's actually not always helpful to argue with them about the underlying basis of their anxieties. The anxiety is inherently irrational, so merely telling somebody else that it's irrational is not always helpful. Instead, in those cases, moving into compassionate witnessing, acceptance, self-compassion, and other forms of and other forms of kind of applied mindfulness can be the best way to interact with that anxiety. Then again, as Rick said, in somewhere between 80% or 70% or 98% of cases, who knows exactly where the number is, most people are really benefited by internalizing this deeply felt sense that they are truly strong and capable, and they can truly make change in the world and oppose actively the things that are causing them fear and anxiety. And Dan and Rick went kind of back and forth about that for a little while. And I think that they did a good job of really clarifying this really interesting distinction between somebody who has clinical extreme levels of anxiety or OCD versus kind of more everyday interventions that we can find for it. Dan laid out a wide variety of things that somebody can do in order to unravel themselves in the moment from an experience of extreme anxiety. And again, I think that he was really open and honest about the fact that this moment is particularly challenging. 
because one of the most effective validated interventions for something like OCD is a form of exposure therapy. And you don't really want to expose yourself to the current conditions that are out there that we're worried about collectively. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dan. Dan's a practicing clinical psychologist in the greater San Francisco Bay Area. I'll include a link to his website in the description of today's podcast. He's really a great guy to reach out to if you're personally struggling with issues around anxiety and OCD. Also, I'd like to remind you about our new Patreon account. If you'd like to support the podcast, we would really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to follow the link in the description of today's episode or go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. For the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a variety of great benefits in return. Also, if you've been enjoying it, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, and hey, tell a friend about it. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.